So welcome to the CEO huddle. And this is a place where we practice that everybody should be their own CEO rather than somebody else doing the job for you. Um, and in that vein, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome today um, the co-author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, seller of 30 million books, advisor to presidents, um, reinvigorated the Napoleon Hill work, which I love, um, and a host of other things that are too numerous to mention. I'm so pleased to welcome today Sharon Lecter. Welcome, Sharon. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be with you. This is such a thrill for me because the, the work that you've been involved in is really the core foundation of, of the things that I've been doing in my career um, and the beliefs that I have. And it, it's, it's just surreal for me to be able to talk to somebody who formed my thought process that got me where I am today. Well, thank you. I'm just, that's a huge compliment coming from you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so if we could start with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, I'm interested in, in many things in this, um, mainly about how did, how did it actually come about that you started to work on that? Well, it was back in 1996. Uh, I got a call one day from my husband. Mike is an uh, intellectual property attorney. And he knew that I had been working with school systems for about six years trying to get financial education into the school systems because our, our, our oldest son had gone off to college and ended up in credit card debt. We didn't even know he had credit cards. So um, I, that was 1992 when I dedicated the rest of my career to financial literacy and financial education. So fast forward a few years, Mike calls me. This guy had come in to see him in Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirt with an idea for a board game. And so I met Robert Kiyosaki at the first beta test for the board game Cash Flow, and loved it. I was the only one that got out of the rat race. Um, and I, my background, I started and built the um, talking books industry, children's talking books. And so I volunteered to help him commercialize the game. And during that process, he told me he wanted to charge $200 for it. And so that's kind of pricey, particularly back in 96, 97. So I said, maybe we should write a brochure that talks about the philosophy that would help people be more willing to spend that kind of money. Mm. That brochure, and most people don't know that, but that brochure was actually um, the original Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so that was, it was written really as a brochure to give away, not as a, a book that would take over the world. And so... We were quite surprised. We thought we would just write the one book and people wanted more and more. And so that became Cashflow Quadrant Rich Dad's Guide to Invest. And we thought that was our trifecta. But no, we, over the 10 years that we worked together, we wrote 15 books together. And then I started the Rich Dad Advisors brand as well. So that's kind of how Rich Dad Poor Dad came about. Wow. And I'm always interested, how does, you know, there are thousands, probably millions of books written. Um, and what do you think it is about that there are maybe a handful of books and Rich Dad is one. We'll talk about Napoleon Hill, um, Think and Grow Rich is another. What is it that, that turns the material into something that becomes iconic? Well, that's a great question because we talked today, we talked about viral marketing and it's so much easier because of the internet. 
um, back in 1997, there was no internet, there was no Amazon. So it was literally people telling each other. So truly a viral success. It had, you know, it certainly helped that unbeknownst to us, not part of our marketing plan, but uh, the book became the darling of the network marketing industry because it talks about the importance of passive income. And so um, that was in the heyday. And so that really helped us get the word out and help it spread around the world. But most importantly, people who read Rich Dad, Poor Dad found something that they could relate to. And like many other financial books that kind of point their fingers at you and tell you what to do, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was just a parable, a story that shared a story that people could relate to. I mean, even just the title, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you immediately think of your own father and figure out which one he falls into. And so by making it relatable, making it easy to read, and really challenging the way people thought about money, saying things like your home is not an asset, we really kind of um, provocatively made people start thinking about money in a different way. And I think that's why it was so successful. In China, they called us the purple storm. So definitely took the world by storm because we challenged people to think about money in a very different way. Yeah. And, and how did you come up with the title? Well, the, the original book was loosely based on Robert's real story and the fact that his, his real father, his biological father, was the head of um, superintendent of education for the state of Hawaii. And then his best friend, um, his father, made money through real estate in Hawaii, and he was not highly educated. And so it talks about the things that he learned from the, both dads. The, the poor dad, which is his father who was head of education, was you know, highly valued education, working hard, being a good employee. The rich dad said, don't, you know, don't spend your time for money, invest your time to buy, build, or create assets and seek passive income. And so the book, the book is the contrast between the two different mindsets. Right. And I'm always, um, I think there's always this tension, isn't there? That it seems to me that, that the majority of people have a poor dad. And even if they're not literally poor, there's this poor mindset, isn't there? That as you grow up, uh, and I find it doing with, I've got two daughters and I hate to do it, but you know, sometimes you say, um, you know, we can't, we can't just be buying things and it's wasting money. And you think, I don't want them to hear that, but then we also want them to have the value of money. So it's difficult, isn't it? Not to be a poor dad. It's easier to be a rich dad than a poor dad, I guess is what I'm saying. Is that true? It's very difficult because a lot of quote unquote rich dads and rich moms, we tend to spoil our kids, just like what you're saying. But part of it, the scarcity mindset comes from, we, we are not teaching money in school. So we're learning about money at home. Mm -hmm. And so if you think back to what did your parents say to you about money? Um, they say things like money doesn't grow on trees. We can't afford it, like you just said. Um, you know, back in my heydays, who do you think we are, the Rockefellers for baby boomers out there, um, and pinch your pennies, save for a rainy day, all of those things are uh, talk comments about money are negative. So you grow up hearing things, money negative, money negative, money negative. And so that's where that scarcity mindset comes from. And then when you actually become successful 
and you have some money, you're afraid you're going to lose it. And so it's really important to recognize if that's how you grew up and you have that scarcity mindset, once you acknowledge it, it can be humorous and you can start releasing it. And so I tell parents all the time, instead of saying we can't afford it, ask your children, how can you afford it? What are you willing to do to earn the money to buy what you want? And it's amazing what happens because a negative statement like we can't afford it closes your mind. You want to get under the covers and turn off the lights. Yeah. But instead of saying we can't afford it, if you say how can we afford it, that triggers your creativity. It triggers your entrepreneurial spirit. And it's amazing what kids can come up with when they really want something. And that's how they build self-confidence and understand value of money. Set a goal, work towards it, achieve, and then celebrate. It, you can see their self-confidence increase right in front of your face. Yeah. And um, I know that you, you then, you've worked with two presidents um, advising on financial literacy, uh, which is an amazing thing. But it, it seems to me it, it's so obvious. Why not teach this stuff in school? I mean, I've always said to people, I would give Think and Grow Rich to every kid at 16. And it's the same as teaching them about money and self-esteem. It's still not in, in the school system, is it? So how do they learn about this stuff? Maybe when they're 40 and it's too late. Well, they learn about it at home. And you've heard the statement, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And that's because you learn about money at home. And so if we truly wanted to level the playing field so that every child has equal opportunity to succeed, we would be teaching money in school. It is a huge uphill battle, not just in the US, um, all over the world, because there's a resistance because a lot of times teachers don't feel like they're qualified to teach it. Superintendents of school systems don't want to rock the boat. They go, the teachers are already overworked. So when we finally, somewhere along this world, get fine-tuned and it's all about the students, not the administration, not the teachers, when we think about what we truly want to do is create equal opportunity for students, we will start teaching financial education in schools. And it is a, in the U.S., it's a state-by-state -state initiative. So I've been working on this for 30 years and I'm not going to give up. But we have to demand as parents, as aunts and uncles, as interested adults, we have to demand that our children learn about this because the school, the original concept of school was based on churning out employees that would follow directions. Well, the world we live in, we want to create, um, we want to keep creativity and ingenuity and innovation alive with our children. And you can only do that by triggering their entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And when you were working with Obama and, and Bush, um, was that so that, I mean, they've got the power, haven't they, to say, right, this becomes part of the curriculum and the best way to get people out of poverty, and even in America, which is, you know, probably the land with most of anywhere on the globe, there's still poverty. But surely the best way to get people out is that they become independent and self-sufficient. Well, that makes total sense. However, I think you probably will agree, government doesn't always make total sense. And so one thing we didn't, we were able to accomplish um, was in 2009, we passed the Credit Card Act, which 
prevents credit card companies from soliciting college students on campus. Now that may sound small, but it's not because that's how my son got into credit card debt. Um, he was greeted his first day of school with free pizza, free money, free t-shirt, free money. We didn't even know he had credit cards. And so that predatory um, lending element is no longer allowed, which thank God, because that keeps, at least the kids have to show they can repay it. They're still gonna be solicited, but not quite so overtly. And so it's, you know, it's an important step, but not enough. We, and as I said, Obama or Bush could not dictate financial education. They could um, heavily suggest it, um, but the individual states are the ones that require the control education within their, within their environment. But it is still an issue. We only have seven states in the U.S. that require a separate personal finance class. I'm out to change that, but it's, you know, it's one state at a time, and it's something that no matter where you live, no matter what language you speak, we all want to be successful. We all need to know about money. And every country can improve in that arena because it's the same issue. Um, changing the school system is like a 50-year endeavor. That's why I have white hair. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the, the next phase, well, I guess you've, you've done so many things, but Napoleon Hill is, is you know, that book, I think, um, is it's just unique the way, the way that was written. But then my wife bought me Outwitting the Devil. And I know you were, you were instrumental in bringing that to the market, but I think that is, is just the, the most amazing piece of work because it's the antithesis of the first one, isn't it? It's actually saying, well, here's all the reasons why people do become addicted to alcohol and cigarettes and become weak and, and don't become independent. And I'm really interested in, in how that came about, bringing that book out, because it was written around the same time as Think and Grow Rich, was it, at that time? Well, Think and Grow Rich was written by Napoleon Hill over a 25-year time period. It, was, it started in 1908, and the actual book was released in 1937. And when he released it, Napoleon Hill was frustrated. He says, here I am, I'm the guardian of this thesis of success. Anybody that follows it will create success in their life. So people, here it is, people know what they're supposed to do, but they still don't do it. Anybody feel busted? Well, he felt busted. He says, I'm here, I am the guardian and I haven't even applied these the way I should in my own life. And so he, he sat down from that frustration and in a few short months wrote out winning the double. So he wrote it in 1938, just the year after writing Think Grow Rich. And this, the title scared his wife to death because she worked for the Presbyterian College. She was afraid she was going to fire. So she forbid the book to be published. And so it was hidden away for 73 years. And one day I got a call. In fact, the month I was releasing Three Feet from Gold, the first book that I did in cooperation with the Napoleon Hill Foundation, I got a call from Don Green saying, I have this manuscript, Sharon. It's been hidden away for 73 years. I don't know what to do with it. And so he sent it to me. And I sat there, only the fourth or fifth person to read the manuscript, seeing it typed in, on an old manual typewriter with, with Napoleon Hill's handwritten notes throughout the book. It was an incredible experience. And I read it in just a few short hours. It really changed my way of thinking, changed, made me understand the younger generation better. And I knew that it had to get out. I also knew that there was a higher, per, higher um, 
power at work because had it been released in 1938, it might have stunted the success of Think and Grow Rich. But today, people need something, a little kick in the you-know-what. They need a in-your-face attitude. And that's what Outwitting the Devil does. It talks about, and in the book, he says, you can believe I'm talking to the real devil or a man-made imaginary devil. Will you derive any benefit? He talks about how we hold ourselves back through fear. Fear of poverty, fear of ill health, fear of old age, fear of criticism, which before 2020, I felt fear of criticism was pervasive in society. We all want to look good. We you know, want to act richer than we are. We want to, um, you know, we're so afraid somebody's going to criticize us. But certainly what's happened in, during this year, we've been back to fear of death and fear of poverty, as well as fear of isolation. And the book helps you deal with it. In fact, the book talks about um, the, the devil is an interrogation of the devil. And he says his two greatest weapons are fear of death and poverty. And he talks about exactly what's happening in 2020. And through the book, he talks about how to unshackle the bonds of fear through seven steps. And the first one being definiteness of purpose. And the book has truly... Um, it really penetrated particularly the younger generation. I'm so thrilled with it because my goal in working with the foundation was bringing Napoleon Hill's teachings to the modern reader because so many young people didn't even know who he was. Mm. And so now it really has been incredible to see the success of thinking of, about winning the devil. Amazing. And I, when I read it, I, I thought to myself, in a way, we're, we're, we are the devil, aren't we? So, yes. The demons in our heads. Really. Negative thinking. Yeah. And it talks about um, definite as a purpose, but he also talks about something called drifting. And this huge and pervasive in today's society. Drifting is, you know, somebody that says, oh, whatever, go with the flow. Somebody asks you, well, you know, where do you want to go? I don't care. You know, so not being in control of your own mind, following the crowd, going with the flow versus non-drifters, which he says only 2% of the society. And the devil says, I don't mess with non-drifters because they know what they want. They are focused. They got the plan to achieve it and they're going to be successful. But all these other drifters, that's where I have fun with playing with their fears. Yeah. And it's something that really, you have to look in the mirror and saying, am I holding myself back? because I'm fearful, I'm afraid to step outside my comfort zone. What am I doing about my environment? So much of our life is controlled by the, where we, who we hang out with and what we experience, our environment. So if you want something different in your life, you need to start saying, okay, what different choices? We're all where we are today because of the choices we made before today. So if we want something different in our life, we just simply need to start making different choices yeah. and realizing, we deserve the greatest success. And usually we are the reason we're not where we need to be because we've made a choice to hold ourselves back. Yeah, it's so empowering, isn't it? That if you think that you're in control, I, I like the fact that nobody else is, it's me. But then that comes responsibility, isn't it? Because it's down to you then. So some yes. people are scared of just that, aren't they? Yes, and it's... It, it is the number one issue. People feeling they're not good enough, um, they don't deserve it, you know, or, or even easy for her to say, 
you may be listening to this podcast right now and you say, well, it's easy for Peter to say that because of his success. It's easy for Sharon to say that. But I want to tell every one of you, I started from nothing. Everything I did was making choices and I've overcome a lot of fear, a lot of defeat. One of the big, big elements is learning from adversity. And I'll tell you, I lost my youngest son seven and a half years ago. There's nothing worse. We're not supposed to outlive our children. And it did a number on me for several years. I almost retired and I got a lot of pushback. And so I made that decision. I say, I'm still here. All of you, you may have, certainly what's happened this year, things have stopped us in our tracks. Um, we've lost control of everything around us. And that, that is debilitating. But you're still here for a reason. And you have... There are people out there that can benefit from what you know and what you've been through. Mm. And so you need to you know, put on the big boy pants or the big girl pants and say, all right, I, I have more to do. I can, I can make a difference. So when you sell 30 million books and, and you, you're involved in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, isn't it easy to, to, to move on and not have a mission and think, well, I mean, to, to get that kind of success and you know I've written a book, so I'm still on my journey. But you, <laughs> thank you for that. I'm holding up the book. Thank you for that. That's a thrill in itself. Um, how do you how do you keep as as focused on your mission as you are today? When you you could easily have sold all those books and and you could be sat on a beach somewhere. Well, I I appreciate that question, Peter, because a lot of I don't often get asked that question. When I left Rich Dad, it was a little bit scary. I made the decision to stand in my own power because I was no longer happy working with my partner who was making decisions I didn't agree with. So, um, but I thought Rich Dad was my legacy. You know, I figured now, gosh, I wrote 15 books. It's like giving birth 15 times. And I walked away from all of it. And it's like, okay, next, what's next? I was still relatively young. And I go, my goodness, what's next? What else? I thought that was my forever. And I made myself open to the possibilities. And so I tell people sometimes you have to close one door for other doors of opportunity to open. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was in store for me when I made the decision, but I knew I had to leave. And that was just a few months later when I got the phone call from President Bush asking me on the President's Advisory Council. You never know what's out there waiting for you. I wouldn't have gotten that call had I still been at Rich Dad. And a few months later in 2008 was when I got the call from the Napoleon Hill Foundation to have built the largest personal finance brand and then to be asked to step in to the large, world's largest personal development brand. I read Think and Grow Rich when I was 19 to get a call saying we'd like to help you reinvigorate Napoleon Hill's teachings. That was a highlight, incredible opportunity. And those, I wouldn't have had that call had I still been a rich dad. So I always challenge you, I challenge everybody listening to this podcast, is there a door in your life that you need to close so mm -hmm. other doors of opportunity can open? Because the opportunities are there. You just need to make yourself um, take the blinders off and, and start recognizing them. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I had something today where a door had closed and today a new one opened. And you're right. You, you, it's not closing, is it? It's, it's almost walking into another room. Yes, exactly. Rich Dad Poor Dad was not my legacy. It was a step to validate my expertise in the world of financial education. Um, being on the President Advisory Council allowed me to stand in my own power and create my own destiny 
and certainly pay your family first, my company now, and my um, ability to help the foundation has established me um, as Rich Dad is simply a piece of my background. It's not who I am and it's not what I stand for. Mm -hmm. And so it's helped me establish my authority within within the, this um, industry and that is financial education entrepreneurship and so my legacy continues and rich dad part dad is just part of it and also i, I noticed that you 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 wrote uh, think and grow rich for women so you i've got two daughters and it's interesting um i think as a as a father i was really conscious that that when i met girls who had a strong relationship with their dad, they had really good self-esteem. And when they didn't, then they were, they were not the same. And so when I have daughters, I thought, well, I'm, I know which one I'm gonna be. So I'm, re I'm really uh, focused on, you know, making them feel good, empowered, independent, and all those things. And, and you also have a, a real passion for, for women being empowered. Absolutely. And I will tell you, I had an exceptional relationship with my father. Both my parents told me I could be, be anything I wanted to be. And so I was, I barely noticed, of course, you always notice I'm the only girl in my accounting classes, only girl, you know, very, one of the very first women hired in public accounting. But I never saw that as, it, I saw that as an opportunity. And yes, I had to work a little harder, but I accepted that because I could be anything I wanted to be. And so I made that decision. And a lot of that was from the standpoint of seeing my parents. And, you know, I kept telling them, what did you do? What, I want to bottle whatever you gave me so to give me the drive that I had. But it's so important as parents to make sure your kids know that they have every opportunity to succeed in any direction they want to go in and to support them in continuing that journey and building that, that, that self-confidence. And that's what I get so worried about in today's world where we have easy credit, kids, you know, we, we're not letting our children set goals and achieve them. And that's so important for them to build that self-confidence and that ability to say, I can do this. So. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you've, you've got, um something that that you you're doing which is new um which is play big but when you introduced that i was amazed that you you were almost saying and i think you said that um you, you had a, a message from from your youngest son that was saying come on mom you need to you need to get to the front again and when i when i look at what you've done and then you're saying it's my time now i'm gonna get out there I thought that's amazing. It looks like you've been out there all the time. Well, and I had, and but at the same time, when I lost my son, and you, so everybody listening, you may have experienced a death that was somewhat important to you, or illness, or financial setback. You 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 get stopped in your tracks, and I was like I was living in neutral, numb, and I was still working. I was still speaking. But I, I just did not have that level of intensity that I had before. And so I finally, you know, I talked talk to my family. I said, I just feel like maybe I should retire. And as I said, I got a lot of pushback. And, and the story you heard me share was I even think I had heard from my son whispering in my ear, you know, get over it, mom. There's more for you to do. 
Yeah. And um, it, I made that decision. I had always played big in my career when at Talking Books, I re, we worked with Disney, Warner Brothers, Sesame Street, and then with Rich Dad when I wanted to go into infomercials, we, Time Life came to us, Time Warner Books. So we've all, you know, that was my power of association, looking for that bigger player to support your, your speed to success. And, and yet I'd stopped doing that. I was just kind of coasting, doing my own thing. And so I made the decision to launch the Play Big Movement to help people, ref I also have a program called Refire, to help people redefine who they are and what they want in life. And to understand that the power of association is so, so strong. I developed the personal success equation in the book, Three Feet from Gold, so people could really define what they want out of life. And it combines your passion and your talent times the power of association times taking the right action and then having faith in yourself, having faith in what you're doing and it's needed and necessary. And that gives you the ability to move forward. If you have the right, when I mentor people, it's usually the power of association and the faith in themselves that needs the most work. And if you have the right people around you, the right associations, they're going to help you in the faith. When you start having a bad day, they're going to step in and support you. And that's why it's so important. Business is a team sport. Um, and people, I have a, a, a little workbook you can do, personalsuccessequation.com, that allows you to figure out where you might need some work and your passion, your talent, because that's all about you. That's what we learn in school. My passion actually came from anger. I was mad we weren't teaching kids about money in school. My talent was my accounting background and my publishing experience. And I could have stopped there. In fact, that's where I was when I was in numb. I was just relying on me. But to truly be successful, you need that power of association and taking the right action, having faith in yourself. And so when I launched the Play Big movement, it was when I made that determination that I was gonna play big again in my life, but I wanted to encourage other people to play a bigger game. And so that's why I share as a private Facebook group, welcome anybody to join. It helps you make those decisions to keep moving forward. And when I made that decision, right, a choice, just up here mentally, it was like taking the blinders off. And the things that have come to me since then have just been incredible. I was in the movie Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, highlighted there. I was just earlier this year highlighted in, in a new television series, The World's Greatest Motivators, along with many of my dear friends, Brian Tracy, Jack Canfield, Michael Beckwith, Mary Morrissey, Lisa Nichols. I mean, it was just an incredible opportunity to be highlighted in The World's Greatest Motivators. And so shared the stage with Susie Orman, all of those things happened because I made myself open to the possibility. And again, it kind of comes back to closing that door. I closed my, the door of playing small and said, okay, I need to get back out there and I need to uh, continue. You know, the retirement thing just didn't work for me. I, I, my greatest um, joy in life is seeing other people improve their lives, be, being inspired by something I say, do, or write. And, um, and it actually comes back to my dad as we talk about strong father figures. He would ask me each night, Sharon, have you added value to someone's life today? I still ask myself that today. He's been gone for 14 years, but um, wouldn't the world be a better place if people focused on adding value to other people's lives? Yeah, yeah, it would. And does it all feel 
natural, Sharon? Does it feel as though this was destiny that you were you were always going to be this, or did you grow into this? I think I grew into this. I will say my eighth grade English teacher told me that I would be a very famous writer. Um, I thought it was a hysterical because I was on a math and science track. Um, my college professor told me that I would be on stage one day, which I also thought was comical because of course thinking being on stage singing, I have a terrible voice, but other people saw things in me before I saw them in myself. And even early in my career, being a celebrity was never on my bucket list. It was, I just want to help people. And certainly if I had wanted a lot of the limelight when my partner, Robert Kiyosaki, that wouldn't have worked well because he loved the limelight. Yeah. And so while I was out speaking and doing other things, I, you know, he, he craved the attention. So that was okay. Because that, uh, that wasn't, I just wanted, he used to say um, he was the horn and I was the engine. And it was very true. But again, we, each of us chooses our path. And as I said, at one point, I thought Rich Dad was my legacy, but I allowed the world myself to open up to the possibilities. And so I think all of us, everybody listening, making, putting yourself in a position of greatest potential. Always strive to put yourself in a position where you're in the environment to learn, environment to make new associations. If you're constantly within the same group and they're not driving to succeed, you're not going to be encouraged to succeed. So who do you hang out with? What do you allow in your brain? All right, this year I, launched, I just a couple months ago launched a program giving daily affirmations um, on abundance, on mentorship, tips to take yourself to the next level, because sometimes we need that daily vitamin. We call it the ATM deposit daily for me. And it's, you know, you can go to atm.sharonlector.com for more information. But I just wanted to give people that positivity, you know, become the beacon of light. Don't wait for the light at the end of the tunnel. Become your own beacon of light, because when you do, other people will be attracted to you. And it's so important that we support each other and add value to other people's lives every day. Yeah. When, when you read this stuff, it, it, it just seems, it's so liberating, I find, that what it says to me, Rich Dad and Napoleon Hill, it basically says that you can do anything you want to do as long as you've got that definiteness of purpose. Yes, number one, definiteness of purpose, having a goal. Obviously, when you set a long-term goal, you're, you're, it's not a straight line. But when you have that goal, you can always recalibrate if you get off course a little bit. Things happen that divert us. And certainly, my long-term goal was to help people um, elevate their financial well-being. All right? I thought my vehicle was Rich Dad. But all of a sudden, nope, I took a different course. President's Advisory Council, then a different course. Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill Foundation, my company, Pay Your Family First. So, but my, my mission, my long-term goal has never changed to help people improve their financial lives. Right. And is there anything that, that you've got uh, for the future that's uh, uh, on, on a list that you haven't done that you think, 
I want to do that? That's a great question, Peter. Um, I think growing my community, I have a, a program that I started um, called Assets Are Sexy. Go to assetsaresexy.com, where I really want to encourage women to focus on building their businesses. Um, only a few years ago, it was 1.7% of women-owned businesses in America made over a million a year. Now it's a 4.2% and it's a dismal number. And, and it's because they're not looking for the right associations. They're, they don't have the confidence in themselves. So I want to support um, women business owners creating more success and getting over that million dollar mark. I also, of course, one of my other missions is continuing to fight the fight to get financial education in the school systems. So both of those things are pretty, are pretty strong in my, in my sights right now. Right. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? If um, particularly again, going back to having daughters, it'd be great if, if more girls from 16, 17 came out feeling stronger, more empowered um, be, because often you know they get they get distracted, don't they? I mean, we've just been to tennis, and there's some there's some amazing uh, 12, 13 year old tennis players, girls. But there's only about one or two when they're 18. There's more distractions, and it just it it just seems to me that making young girls more empowered would be a, would be an amazing thing to do. Well, and part of the, all those distractions is that. Um, we're not empowering our kids to set goals. And, you, you know, it takes practice to be exceptional at anything. And so when you have so many distractions and so many different, you're multitasking all the time, yeah. it's hard to be exceptional in one area because that means dedication, it means mastery over self, self-discipline, which is something that's very hard to find in today's world. And so it's very important. That that's those, those are the tenants in outwitting the devil. Definite is a purpose. Mastery over self. Learning from adversity. Managing your environment. Managing your time. And all of those things are very important to create success. All of those things are challenged in today's society. I was going to ask you, what, what advice would you give to a, to, um, a, a, a 16, 17-year-old girl or boy? But I think the things that you just listed, that's it, isn't it? I mean, there isn't anything, if you do those things, you're in good shape, yeah? Yeah, catch yourself if you say things like, whatever, I don't care, because that's leaning towards drifting. Yeah. Be, be dedicated in what you want and make sure that when you say yes to something, it's gonna help you to get there. And if it's, not, if it's something that is just a distraction, learn how to say no gracefully and focus on what you want in life. Yeah, even this experience, during lockdown, I thought, what can I do? So uh, I, I started my podcast. Um, I had to work out the technology and nearly gave up. And then I thought, well, I'll do this, but who will I talk to? And it just shows, doesn't it? Doors open and here I am chatting to you. Uh, two, three months ago, I was sat with the list thinking, well, I don't know who else to speak to. Why would I have a podcast? I mean, that's a good example, isn't it? It certainly is. Why not? That's my philosophy. When I left public accounting and started my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial career at the age of 25, it was because I said, why not? 
instead of asking for why, which you're waiting for someone to give you an answer, ask yourself, why not? Why not do something different? Why not take the road less traveled? Why not create a new initiative? Because successful businesses do one of two things, solve a problem or serve a need. And so you're solving a problem because you're using your time wisely and you're serving a need, helping people during this time. And so you're gonna be successful because your number one essence is helping others. And that's, that's what we all need to be doing. Yeah, yeah, very true. So Sharon, you, you've been very generous with your time. Um, there is something I'd like to ask you, and um, it might be a difficult uh, thing to answer. If you went for dinner to your favorite restaurant and you could take four people with you, alive or dead, I might be able to guess one, who would you like around your dinner table? Non-family. Non no family? No, because you, you can have family anytime if you wish. Okay. okay, so it would not be my dad, I guess. All right. Well, certainly Napoleon Hill. Um, Dale Carnegie. Anne Rand. Um, and Ronald Reagan. Oh, really? Oh, mm -hmm. that, that's a great table. <laughs> that is, yeah. I think it'd be interesting um, to create a kind of collage, you know, like a, a Last Supper of, um, you know, maybe talk to 20 people. Um, mm -hmm. And, and have their four, and see what the table looks like, and, and, and then have all the characters there. Um, it'd be an amazing experience, wouldn't it? It is, yeah, great. Yeah, having Napoleon Hill there would, would um, what, what, in, what intrigues me just before we go is, I'm always fascinated why, why that kind of thinking existed in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and I've read, um, the Science of Getting Rich, Wallace Wattles, which I think was even older. So that wisdom existed and we've evolved, haven't we? We've got iPhones and technology, but in a way, there seemed to be more wisdom then than now. Do you think that's true? Yes, but I think it was um, more concentrated. The Andrew Carnegie is the one who really recognized that there was a common trait common um, system among all his wealthy friends. And so in 1908, he challenged a very young Napoleon Hill. He says, I'm gonna give you the opportunity. I'm gonna introduce you to all of these 500 wealthy men. There were no women in business back then. But I want you to you know, embark on a journey of understanding what the common traits of success are among all of us. And then he also interviewed thousands of people who considered themselves failures. And that's why Think and Grow Rich is so powerful because it's like a term paper, a doctoral thesis on success. It's not one man's philosophy. And so that power is, makes that book as relevant today as it was back then. Yeah. But back then that knowledge and that wisdom was harbored by a very small group. And today it's available to everyone. The issue comes back to my success formula self-confidence, having the faith in yourself that you can take this knowledge and apply it and create success. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, 
I think the world would be a better place if uh, Think and Grow Rich and Outwitting the Devil were in every school satchel. And I think the, the benefits would be massive if, if that happens one day. So with your help. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Peter. <laughs> and I think with your help, Sharon, I think there's more chance of that happening than without. So, well, this has been a treat. Um, there's some, some great advice and wisdom there, Sharon. So I'm, I'm uh, very grateful. It's been wonderful to spend some time with you. Um, well, I've enjoyed it very much. I invite everybody to reach out to me, info at SharonLector.com. Anything I can do to support you, support your audience, we're here to support you. And if anybody wants to play big, um, then come and join you. Yes, Play Big Movement with Sharon Lecter on the private Facebook group, definitely. Wonderful. Okay, Sharon, well, thank you very much. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll catch up again sometime. Well, thank you, Peter. Totally enjoyed it. And good luck with your book. I can't wait to hear more about it. <laughs> Thanks. Take care, Sharon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.